0: Welcome to the Your Data Driven Podcast. If you like this podcast, be sure to visit our website at yourdatadriven.com for more useful help and advice on setting up your race car, mastering data analysis, and driving faster. Welcome to Episode 23. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Claude Ruel on the show. Famous, even infamous, in the world of motorsports, Claude actually began his engineering career as a race car constructor. With a tough love teaching style, Claude is well known to anyone who's been involved in Formula Student. As someone who's consulted at all levels of motorsport, however, this episode is jam-packed full of practical tips and ideas that you can apply to improve your own racing. Hold on to your hats for this one, folks. I literally like the touch paper and stand well back. It's a good one, so let's get
1: into it. Welcome, Claude. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. First time with you, Samir. So I'm anxious and excited to have this conversation with you. Well, I am very, very
0: excited. So there's nothing to be anxious about. Yeah, it's a real pleasure and honor to have you on the show. What we'd love to know about is a little bit about you. So for the people who don't know who you are, And just understand a little bit more about your background and what you've done in the world of motorsports. But also for the people listening, maybe they can get one or two takeaways that they can go away and they can apply. Think, yeah, actually, I hadn't quite thought of it like that before. Or that was a nice way of, of thinking about a real problem that I have that, I'll now have a super simple way of solving. And I happen to know that you're quite good at making the complicated simple. So that's your gauntlet is laid down. The challenge for this conversation is to try and maybe tackle one or two of those more complicated subjects. We can get our head around them. But first off, tell us a bit about you and your,
1: your background. How did you get into racing? All right. I'm 66 years old. I've been working in racing as a professional for 43 years. And basically, my race car engineering vehicle dynamic career is split in two parts. One as an employee of different racing team. And I will elaborate a little bit of that. And then in 1997, I created my own company, Optimum G. Anyway, beginning of my career, well, I was 10 years old when I saw the 24 of Le Mans on TV. And I don't know why I was hooked up. I was, geez, this is interesting. That's challenging. And both the engineering and the driver work was really impressive to me. And then I, st- I had n- no bloody money. The, the little bit of money I had was bought in buying every race car magazine that you can find. So I, devor- I, I was devouring it. And I went each hiking to so many races. I went to so Formula One Grand Prix going under the fence, never paid. Don't ask me how and why I did it. Why I knew because I had no money, but how I cannot believe that today that's impossible. But passing in inside the trunk, under the fence and so on and Having autograph of Fittipaldi and Loda and so on, it was unbelievable. You know, I was really passionate about that. It's a thing with motorsport that it it's, it gets under
0: your skin, and then once it's there, it, it just can't you can't get rid of it, can you? I mean, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I know so many so many people in Formula One, for example, are telling me I'm sick of that job and they quit and 3 months later they are coming back it's a drug just Roger Pensky told me one day if you want to do a business of racing you need to be 60% reasonable and 40% passionate if that word does exist. People who put passion before reason, you know the say, if you want to make a a small fortune in racing, you start with a big one. But anyway, I I was attracted by that. And I don't know why, but I had the feeling that my skill would be better in engineering than driving. Although I did do a racing school and I I, I, I had future. People around me were telling me, you should go further. And when I built my Formula Ford, I ended up going to the circuit, of Nivelle, and my driver said, you should drive it. And I drove the car, and I was a tenth of a second of the of the lap record. But I don't know why I didn't have the guts. I didn't feel like a, a Bruce McLaren being both a car manufacturer and a racing driver. I, I was not that convinced I could do both properly or do both properly. I only wanted. So anyway, I went to an engineering school. And you said to me that, and I think it's correct, I, I'm able to explain complex system in relatively simple way. And I'm going to tell you why. And I'm going to shoot in my foot. It's because I'm not that bright. I'm definitely passionate. And when I went to school, believe me, I had to work hard to have decent grade. Actually, I had to repeat the first year. Uh, so the five-year course, became, uh, five years master course became six and I barely did it. I had a lot of summer exams and so on. So I was not, I was a C minor student, I have to tell you. This for the benefit of some of the people who are
0: listening who may not know, but you, you now work very much with students, don't you? And I think you, you give them quite a bit of encouragement in a unique way.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's what we call tough love sometimes. <laughs> uh, but I'm going to come to that. Why a part of the audience is students? So first of all, I had to work hard. I Come, I'm not going to uh, go through that, but I come from a pretty dysfunctional family, so I didn't have any moral support, and not even a girlfriend or something like that at that time. And, and I was literally, there were days I was hungry. Financially speaking, I was struggling, I can tell you. But in the middle of the second year, I decided, so three and a half years before graduating, I decided I was going to make a thesis about the design and the manufacturing—not only design, but manufacturing—of uh, a race car. And three and a half years later, I literally rolled a car in front of the member of the jury. That's the way they call it in Belgium. That's where I graduated from. Half of the teacher, uh, out of the jury made of teacher, and the other half from the industry. And the school gave me a 19 out of 20 which is a a score that the bloody Jesuits, because half of my teachers were Jesuits, not easy people, good teacher, but not easy, a score that that hadn't been given in the school for 17 years. And guess what? A journalist heard about it, decided to write a little article, and then the moment I was going to accept a bloody boring job at Shell as a technical representative of their oils and things like that, I got a phone call saying that I earned an award of what at that time was the second biggest Belgian company. And with that money at 23 years old, I decided to become a race car manufacturer. I I calculated a a few years ago, two or three years ago, with an inflation of 3%, that amount of money would be $690,000 today. So I had literally, heaven falling on my shoulder there and I, that car didn't have an engine because I didn't have the money to put an engine there but it was a what we call a rolling chassis mm. and here boom at 23 years old I become race car manufacturer now and I want to in phases on that because I'm not only a scientist absent mind professor but also I'm a practical guy and the first thing I did with that money believe it or not is that I went to pass my truck driving license because I knew that car, mm-hmm. I had to go to Nivelles, Zolder, Belgium, Zandvoort, Nürburgring, and so on. And I bought a truck. And so I was young. I was dumb. I was very stubborn. I, I, I knew that I was the best. And the best proof is that I told it myself. So I had a little bit of conflict with myself. And I never lost money. I didn't know tons of money, but I never lost it, lost, lose money. But boy, did I learn. I learned so much. I was welding, machining, doing polyester. We didn't have carbon fiber at that time. So 1978, uh, 79, sorry. But I built and I did set up and I started to ask myself the right question about camber, tow, tire pressure, caster, ride right eye.
0: So I've got a question for you on this one. So how did you go from that moment where you went on uh, building the car and you have to obviously answer those questions when you're constructing a car because it's here's the wheel and here's the car. They have to go together somehow. But when you get into it as a competition, it then becomes, how can I manipulate that setup to go quicker? So what was it that made you think, actually, I need to learn a bit more about this? Was there a moment or did it kind of come naturally?
1: In the seminar I I, I teach, I I, I come with, let's say, methodology of thinking about that. But at the time, it was in a very, how can I say that... um, not organized way. First of all, reading mm-hmm. a lot of magazine. being honest with myself, saying, I don't know, but I should, if I don't have the answer, I should at least ask myself the right list of questions, speaking with a lot of people. Let me give you an example. I, I'm going to be a little bit negative here, but I teach in university uh, recently, uh, two years ago, before COVID, beginning a master course in a university. And I asked the guys, what do you want to do? I said, I want to be a Formula One engineer. Ah, Okay. How many Formula One race did you attend? Even as a spectator, not even in the paddock, none, all on TV. Ta-da. How are you going to, until you smell and touch and feel and so on. So it's very important. I know it's, not, it's an indirect way to answer your question. But it, it, you need to put yourself at crossroads of people who know better or seem to know better. And you can disagree with them, but you have to listen to them. And I always learn, I say to the kids, if you want to have a professional, knock at the door. The universe is a little bit philosopher here, but the universe will give you, but you need to push the door. You need to make contact with people. And that's what I did. You have no idea the number of people. When I was a student, I met racing driver by hitchhiking. So here we go. I'm going to the 24-hour spa, hitchhiking, and I'm thinking, okay, by default, it's going to be under the fence to go to a thing. The guy who picked me up was the head of all the marshals, and he gave me uh, a pass, let alone a paddock pass. I was on heaven. But, and then I was able to speak with engineer and, and, and drive and things like that. But that didn't, wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have had the guts to say, I'm going hitchhiking. You need point. to expose yourself.
0: But you made a good point there about the right questions to ask. And, and maybe we've gone off on a tangent, but I don't mind. This is quite interesting because I think there's a lot of misinformation around of. the paddock, how you solve some problems that have actually been solved, but it's not common
1: knowledge. And often the question is not quite right that people are asking. Whether you're a student, whether yeah. you're a Formula One engineer, you're an amateur racing, the number one question that you have to answer is why. W-H-Y. That's the number thing. After that, you can make how. And by how much and so on, but why? Okay. And so I am very adversary about people giving me recipe. In the seminar I teach, I said, okay, you have people coming to the seminar. I said, I have understood what do you do with my Ackerman? And they are disappointed when I say, I don't know. Let me give you an example. I have a few gods in my life, professionally speaking. And one of them is Paolo Dallara. Okay. So the guy has 60 years of experience. Successful, everything he touched, it make it work. He's known uh, Gian Dalara Dallara is known for the car that he produced, Formula Three, Formula Two, IndyCar, uh, Indica, and so on. But a lot of people don't know how much he does doing in F1 with RS, Porsche lmp 2 DTM, wind tunnel, and so on. And it doesn't have a, a Dallara name there. He said, Okay, we take the check and <laughs> that's fine. So, anyway, I ask him the same question. You have understood what do you recommend? The guy look at you, it depends. It depends on the driver. The car, the tires, the condition, the tarmac, and so on. And so if a guy like that, with 60 years of successful experience, is not, come on, buddy, that's the answer. Put more Ackerman or two and so on. I hate recipe. So people come to the seminar sometime asking me recipe, and I don't sell recipe. I resell methodology. And methodology does not necessarily mean system of differential equation. I like math and things like that, but sometimes simple logic and experimentation help you. But if you don't mind, I'm, not that I'm directing this conversation, but I need to finish a little bit the beginning of my story because it's influence the rest. So, I did. I did build that race car, and as I told you, I learned a lot and so on, winning a few races. But I was not able to fight against Van Diemen Works team and so on. I had one set of tires uh, every four races. They had four sets of tires per race and so on. And then I had a proposal to help Luigi Racing in the European Touring Car Championship. I went. For for one race and apparently I did a good job there because the next day he offered me a job. So I sold the Formula Ford company, it was not an overnight decision to let my baby go, but I sold it and then I went to work in the European Touring Car Championship for Luigi Racing with Alfa Romeo. Uh, then for RAS with the Volvo, the mythical flying bricks with Johnny Shekoto and Anders Olofsson, Thomas Lindstrom and Irv Granberg. Gee, my God, I had fun there. Then the Toyota Supra, uh, a lot of fun. Then I went to work for what was my best boss in my whole career, Hugues de Chonac, ORECA in Formula 3. Six races out of 12 the first year and the title with Eric Comas and nine races out of 12 and the title and with Jean-Marc Gounod and Eric Ellery. Then I went to Formula One and with AGS. It was not a pleasant experience, (laughs) uh, I have to tell you, because the team was bought by a rich man who ended up going to jail, by the way. And I have very funny and sad story to tell you about Formula One experience there. Then I became the technical representative of Reinhardt in Japan. And I was also the engineer of Russ Chiva over there was very interesting. Very interesting. Working with Japanese could be mind bugging. I have so many funny stories to tell you over because the Japanese they don't say no. It's always we think about that, we will let you know and so on. No. It's digital. A woman is pregnant or not pregnant. Okay. It can she cannot be her pregnant. So we make a decision. We put the new wing or we don't put the new wing. You know? And they are totally thrown out of their house by that kind of attitude. But it, it worked. And then I came in IndyCar, where I worked for five years with uh, Stefan Johansson at Bettenhausen and, and Ari Lowendijk also, and so on. And then something happened. When I was still in Europe, I was becoming very friend with the people of Pi Research because... Mm-hmm. What interests me is not only simulation but validation. People come with so many solution, but you need to close the loop and you need to validate that. Guess what? At that time Pi came with the black box. They were the first industrial people doing it not doing it very professionally at a high level. the black box I said, okay, here you go. And I was going to Cambridge quite often. When you say the black box, you mean data logger? Data acquisition, yes. Black box is the the common word. Yes, and and they asked me to come time to time to evaluate better version and so on. I didn't want to be paid by them because it would have been a problem because I was a race engineer. And then, if I work, I have two salaries at a certain time, one is going to say, uh, Who are you working anymore? So they paid for my fees and so on. And I was a beta tester of their stuff. But the team I worked with, they liked it because I came back with free of charge update software, some sensors, and so on and so on. Anyway, and then at the moment they went in IndyCar, my God, at that time, I remember we were at Long Beach in things like uh, 96, uh, something like that. There was 36 cars on the grid, and there, we had 43 cars, uh, so the seven team went home Saturday night. So do you imagine? And each team in IndyCar have a spare car. And the problem is that PI was sending tons of uh, things there. But then there is a lot of money in the United States, but most of the time it's well used. And the team were coming back to PI saying, well, we spent that much money with you, but it doesn't make the car going quicker. So because they knew me, they said, Claude, can you make a little inquiry about why the people don't use the data acquisition properly? And I knew the answer, but I had to make it a formal inquiry. And the answer was simple. At that time, despite sensor and so on for a quarter million dollars on a car sometimes, the, the guys were often comparing the blue trace with the wretches, oh, look, the blue driver brakes earlier and he turned the steering wheel more and he accelerate earlier. I said, well, wait a moment. <laughs> you can do much more from this sensor. The problem is that if you don't know what's a roll center, a slip angle and an anti-dive and anti-squat. So they said to me, can you teach a seminar about that? And I proposed them a, a three-day seminar, two days on vehicle dynamics, the basics, and then the third day said, okay, now that you understand the basics, How can you use the data to improve your car and your driver? So I went the tail between the legs in 1997, October 97, giving my first seminar. And with my little bit of French accent, I was concerned that the good old boys of NASCAR couldn't understand what I was saying. I was freaking out. You say I'm pretty uh, outspoken guy, but every bloody seminar I teach, I'm freaking out. You have no idea. The first 20 minutes.
0: That's like when you're a racing driver getting nervous. I've got
1: a question beyond the black box. What kind of data was being logged? Okay, that's going to... I'm going to answer your question by asking another question, by repeating a question that I'm very often. I have a limited budget. What sensor do I put on my car? Okay. All right, you, you need the speed and you need the lateral accelerator because that's the way the software will go design the map. A equal V squared divided by R. If you have the speed, lateral acceleration, you have the radius. So you have a pretty good shape. GPS could be, is good also, but you you need that. But it, it's mandatory. It comes with many data acquisition system, wheel speed, sensor, and so on. Okay. Then ideally, you would like to have three-way accelerator. X, Y, Z, because a three-way accelerator is not costing three times a one-way accelerator. So the steering trace, and then absolutely necessary throttle, steering, and brake. And I insist about that because despite I'm a vehicle dynamic engineer, start with the driver. Start with the driver. And the driver has five comments. The command that you have on the car are the steering, the throttle and the brake. And there are two more, the clutch time to time and the gear change. Okay, but everything is happening there. So I always say to the guys, try to understand what the driver is fighting before you try to, uh, to understand why is it fighting. In other words, you have the engineer channel with Strain gauge on the push road and laser uh, ride out and infrared temperature sensor. Yeah, but can you notice, didn't you notice the driver turned the steering wheel the other way around? So he's probably fighting an oversteer. Simple then complicated. I find that all the time, especially with students. I said, guys, the, the, the basement, then the wall, then the roof, not the other way around. The foundation, then the wall, then the roof, not the other way around. And they love to make it things more complicated uh, than necessary. Let let me open a parenthesis about complicated not. We have a software called Optimum Lab, which is bloody free of charge. Okay, So it's free of charge on the internet. It's a teaser. I'm not going to lie (coughs) to you. It's a little bit of a marketing tool. But still, at the beginning, we did that for the formula student kids who have to make a decision between mass, power, downforce, drag, and grip. Uh, okay, I want a heavier car. I have to have a... Uh, I put a four-cylinder. It's heavier. I have more power. But do I pay it? in? Sorry, I put wings, no wing, and so on. We used that software in, 19, in 2017, if I remember, for an LMP2, a new rule of LMP2 at Le Mans. And the lap time was 3 minute 25.9. And are you ready for that? We were 6 tenths out of the pace on okay. the prediction. And you align the speed, the lateral and longitudinal acceleration, you cannot see the difference. It's spot on, it's spot on. And so no roll center, it's a mass point. There is no wheelbase track and so on. And it's unbelievable. It was a surprise even to us. And what's the moral of the story? Start with simple, then complicate. One wheel, two wheel, then four wheels and so on. But anyway, so let's go back to the sensor. So driver first, people, then the money, people, then the machine, not the other way around. And that's the same thing when you are building a team. People. I, I was contacted uh, a few years ago by a NASCAR team. The guys were struggling and they asked me to help them. And I went over there and I said to the team owner, buy 20 books of Who Moved My Cheese? I said, you have technological problem, but you have a people problem before you have an uh, engineering problem. You need to work on your team before that. So people, then the more people then machine. So same thing for race car engineering. Start with the driver. So throttle, steering, brake. Okay, number one. And the good thing is that, and we teach that in the seminar, uh, is what we call KPI, key performance indicator, not the kingpin inclination, uh, yeah. KPI. And it helps you to say, okay, Look, the lap time is the last number which never lies. Maybe you cheat. Maybe you had a draft. Maybe you had a qualified tires that nobody knows about. It doesn't matter. It's 132.5. It's 132.5. That, that's a fact. You cannot deny it. Okay, and But what is even more important is the lap time consistency. It's not the pole position, it's the lap time consistency, especially in endurance racing. And for example, one of the things we work a lot is tire degradation. And you would be uh, amazed how much tire degradation is created by the driving style. For example, we have been working since 2008 with Goodyear Dunlop, especially in LMP2, and we have been helping many racers to win championships against Michelin, which is Michelin. that's the god. And when we started to collaborate with Dunlop, we were nowhere. We were really the challenger, and we ended up kicking the butt of the and them a few times and win many championships. And if you speak to Goodyear Dunlop, they will tell you Optimum G is part of that. But anyway, tie degradation, you tell the driver, take it easy for the first two free laps, like especially if you start with relatively low pressure, because if you hit the curb with low pressure, you can literally break the carcass. You go to Sebring, for example, and you take it easy the first three four laps, and you make a 28 laps stint, and you are very performant in the last three quarter of the stint, and sometimes you can make a double stint with it. But you attack like crazy in the first few laps, and yeah, you are at the head of the of uh, the group there, and then. The last 10 laps, your tires are going to agonize. It's all about the way you build the temperature and the pressure in the tire. It makes a big difference. And guess what? It's all about the way you turn the steering. Let me tell you a story. You're going to love this. A good friend of mine is Oreste Berta. Okay. I need to tell you that story. This is a funny, very story. This guy come to a seminar in 2002 in Barcelona. Oreste Berta's son. And he said to me, you should visit us. And I said, ended up going to Brazil. I said, okay, I'm going to go to Argentina. I said, I can meet them. And with my typical European ignorance and arrogance, I look a little bit at Argentina as, you know, third world country. Well, my friend, I was in that company for 10 minutes that already changed my mind. That's the only team in the world which has a wind rolling floor in the Southern hemisphere. They have, they are building the engine. They are building, are you ready for that? They were building their own tires. Yes, yes, unbelievable. They were building their own dampers from scratch. He he showed me a damper. He said, the only thing we don't do uh, do it is the seals and the rodents, but everything we machine ourselves. And then I had dinner with the guy, the father. And the father looked at me. At that time, the guy was 72. He just finished. Are you ready for that? Designing, machining, assembling, flying, homologating. Helicopter. Helicopter, yeah, 72 years old. And during dinner, the guy looked at me and he said, yeah, William, when I was 29 years old, I was in Formula One. Huh? I said, yeah. At that time, you didn't call it this way, but I was the chief engineer of Juan Manuel Fangio. I said, okay, there is history here. Suddenly, I said, oh. Are you feeling nervous at this point? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I said, gee, another god. These people, by the way, like Polo Dallara, Pensky, Hugues de Chonag, and Oresté Berta, senior and junior, they have the two characters which seems to be opposed, but they married very well. The two treat of characters that they have, ambitious and humble. You speak to these people and they say, the more I know, the more I don't know. Meanwhile, I have kids of 22 years old who tell me my simulation software is perfect. You know, I said oh, you're gonna be very. If it's true, you're gonna be very rich very quickly. Let's be honest. So Argentina, and I saw a guy testing drivers, and he tested ten drivers, and he said eight of them go home. There's no change. The guy is pretty rude, and so on. And the two guys there, there's a chance They can go in racing. So I'm at the beginning of their career, and I look at him and I said, "How the hell do you do that?" He said, "Come with me," and we took this Ford Focus. Rental car, absolutely nothing, and he said, "Look, I'm going to make that car understeer or oversteer, and it's all about two things: where do you start to turn the steering wheel, and by which slope? So, if you imagine on a graph, do you turn the steering wheel 50 meter, 55 meter, or 45 meters before the apex, and what's the speed, the slope at which you're going to turn the steering wheel?" And he said. It's all depending. And one of the things I have learned is that vehicle dynamic and racing driver and philosophy, they are the same thing. We we have been told that the four years of the life of a baby is going to determine the rest of his life. The first few meters at the entrance of the corner is going to depend uh, determine the behavior of the car. Instead, it's all about where or when you turn the steering wheel and at which speed you turn it. Guess what? Data acquisition... With a steering sensor will show you where, by how much, and at which speed you turn the steering wheel, which allow you to do three things measure, compare, or benchmark if you want to drive it. But then it can be less cruel than just a report car, but also improve. And then it's all about attitude. You have racing drivers. Okay, many years ago we had racing school with no data acquisition.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I've had a a guy on the show He used to run the Jim Russell school and they had, they didn't have data acquisition, but they did have Around the track, they put instructors and that was kind of data acquisition. It was, you know, they would all go out, watch you drive around and then come back and feed back. And,
1: everything. and, and this this observer are usually yeah. pretty good. OK, yeah. but the problem sometimes is that you had some guy saying, oh, you you don't like me because I have red hair or I'm wearing glasses or a little bit fat or whatever. But now you have the data and only one percent of the people who are going to sell you that thing is shit. said, when you come with objective data, you cannot deny it. Show me the numbers, show me the trace, and then you would see. The challenge a lot of people
0: have, particularly if they're not an engineer like yourself or a wannabe engineer like your students, a lot of the people listening to this show, they might go, yeah, okay, I think the data's gonna help me, but I don't know where to start with it. What would you say to them? Can you help them in some way, give them some idea? You say, look at the driver channels, but what is it? look at
1: Okay, I'm going to be encouraging and discouraging. I'm going to be discouraging by saying, you're not going to learn that in, uh, there is no magic trick. You're not going to learn that in 10 minutes. But on the other hand, what we do is that we, we have two kinds of seminars. We have one which is more theoretical about vehicle dynamic and one more hands-on. Okay. So the hands-on seminar is that there is a little bit of theory. And then we said, okay, now you open your laptop. We're going to give you data from the MoTeC. And we like Motec because Motec is free of charge in terms of software. So we give them data and they will recognize that it is Le Mans or whatever. The only thing is that they're going to see that the drive is a Charles Lindbergh or Julius Caesar or whatever. And the date is crude. And anyway, we don't need to give the lap record. It's a lap. Okay. And they have a few sensors. And believe it or not, two-thirds of the seminar is about analyzing what we call the KPI of the driver. And one-third is about the car. People, then the money, people, then the machine. And so, for example, we look at steering harshness. So, in other words, which frequency do you turn the the steering wheel? Okay, Uh, another story. I have millions of stories to tell you. Okay, this is interesting. I give a seminar in Australia, and he is this guy. I worked with with the Stone Brothers in 2006, and he's now working with robot Race. But he said to me, that's a very interesting story. He said, They modified the geneta, make it electrical, then they make it autonomous, and they made that car going through Silverstone, and the lap time was only, they made like 10 laps within a few tenths of a second, extremely. But the first time there was a driver, and the driver was this engineer. And he said to me, Claude, it was incredibly scary. I had my left hand like an inch, if not a quarter of an inch of the steering wheel, my right hand on the red button, which if you push on it, allow you to resume manual. And my left foot, like a quarter of an inch, if not a tenth of an inch, on the, near the brake pedal. And you arrive in the first corner and said, shit, you are not going to make it. You're not going to make it. And it goes. And so you get used to it. But the beginning, but he said, let me tell you what the difference is. The steering trace. There is no feeling in a robot. But what's happening with a driver going in a corner? You see some frequency in the steering. The driver doesn't need to turn the steering. He doesn't need. But why does he did? He said, if I turn the steering wheel and the car obeys to me, then I'm confident that next lap, I'm going to go a little bit faster. I'm going to put my throttle at 78 instead of 75. I will have the guts, and I'm polite, to go a little bit faster. But if the, guy, the car is not responding, then say, whoa, 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 whoa. It probably is going to lift up a little bit. And it's what we call the sensing part in the control loop between the man and the machine. So guess what? One of the things we do is that we have a simple tool to analyze the harshness of the steering. In other words, you compare the the, the real data with the filter one, and we organize that, and we show that the people ought to go from the MoTeC to Excel and making a, a simple graph and showing that. And then you compare drivers. And then the people look at them, themselves and ah, I understand what this bloody driver is quicker than me, or why he's not degrading. Breaking distance. It's not only your far you break, it's the consistency of the breaking distance. We believe in consistency much more than pure performance, especially because of tire degradation. I'm going back in, in the question, start with that. No, if you have more money, the next thing that you would buy is linear potentiometer showing the damper movement. And then a gyro could be very useful if you know how to use it. Uh, fantastic thing would be infrared temperature sensor. And they are cheaper and cheaper, by the way. To be honest with you, today, I don't know how I would set up a car without an infrared sensor. It's very funny because the first time I use infrared temperature sensor with furniture row, mamma mia, we speak about 2007 in NASCAR, they look at me and they said, it's embarrassing. What do you mean? It's embarrassing because we do in one day of development what we were doing in seven days. Because before it was like testing and carpet bombing. We try all the solution until the driver is happy. What metric are you using on the infrared? So this, is just
0: a, this is a genuine question because it's a new thing for me that I've not used. And I'm curious about this infrared sensor on the car versus taking a uh, tire or temperature sensors in the pits. And, and the question is, what is the benefit of having it on the
1: car and, and how okay. do you do anything with it? I will answer that question by telling you a story. I did a okay. test in IndyCar one day at Indianapolis. Okay, mm. We asked the driver to make five laps and then we said, come back fast without jumping on the brake. Come back fast and we will wait for you. At the entry of the pit lane, and it's five-eighths of a mile, one-eighth kilometer, and uh, one kilometer. The pit lane is pretty long at Indianapolis. Okay, and we measured. We had four Goodyear engineer that I did bring on this little experiment, and we measured the tide temperature at the beginning of pit. Okay, go back out, make five laps, then we will wait at the end of the pit lane. But you have the speed limiter. You do all your 50 miles, 80 kilometers an hour. You stop, you measure the tire temperature. Are you ready for that? 40 degrees C, not Fahrenheit less, 40 C, C. Let me tell you this. If you speak with a race tire manufacturer, he will tell you that 80 percent of the grip comes from the hysteresis and 20 percent for the adhesion. And the ester is about I'm going to put that in simple language. All the molecules of the rubber banging into each other. OK. And then it's like you put 20 people in a nightclub, you have heat. You put 200 people, you have more heat, the same. The more you have the molecule banging into each other, uh, okay, yeah. And the hysteresis is measured by putting your core temperature inside the tire, one or two millimeter inside it. That's correct. The problem is that it's not giving you an, an answer live it, because your track is not circuit. The infrared has the advantage to measure life, but it has the disadvantage to measure the temperature, which is not... Only one part of the story. Twice in my life, one in Europe and a few times in Japan, we had infra uh, sensors which were embedded in the tire of the time of the vulcanization. Okay, so we were measuring the core temperature of the tire as the tire was running. But it costs a lot of money. It doesn't last very long, <laughs> and I'm not to tell you We calculate at 300 kilometers an hour, you have 2,500 g there of radial acceleration. And so when the sensor leaves the compound, it goes on Mars or Jupiter, or it's, you don't find them anymore. But it's very instructive. But we are speaking about, I need to say that to explain, but don't give up measuring your tire temperature in the pit lane, okay? okay. You still will learn things, but be aware that it's not the reality. Infrared temperature sensor is a big advantage to show you live what's happening, At every second, every tenth of a second, uh, every meter of the racetrack, but it's not giving you the reality. That being said, the number one advantage of infrared tempered sensor, when you have three of them is camber. We were speaking earlier about this. We, We were speaking about this recipe that people use. The inside temperature should be ten degree or fifteen degrees more than than. The, I use three point two degree of camber in Michigan in uh, nineteen fifty eight. So I repeat the yeah, and they cannot answer why. People tell me the chassis torsion stiffness should be x time the roll stiffness of the spring and the anti roll bar, and I said why because I read it or I heard it something that's not going to work. I don't know that you're going to have the right answer, but you didn't ask yourself the right question anyway infrared temperature sensor, the biggest thing is helping you with the camera. Why do you put negative camber? You put negative camber so that when you take into account the role of the car, you come with a tie which is nearly perpendicular to the thing. And then it is very simple. The perfect, okay, in a very simplified term. I don't, this way more complicated, but simplified. That's
0: the problem, right? So this is a
1: good example. When you know the
0: answer, it's really difficult to explain it because you know that to do that, you're, there's all these edge cases that you're having to ignore, like a generalized theory, but it's not quite right. and But I'm like going to
1: give <laughs> you the simple answer. The simple answer is sufficient to, to make progress.
0: Perfect.
1: You want the biggest contact patch as possible, okay, but you want also the most homogeneous distribution of the force inside that contact patch. And guess what? That will happen. When you free infrared temperature sensor, I'm showing you the same temperature. And where do you need the grip? In the corner. And in order to have an equal temperature across the tire in the corner, you will necessarily need a little bit more in the straight line and when you come back to the pit, okay? And that's why one of the the things about infrared temperatures is no. I know the public uh, listening to this thing is mainly amateur. I'm going to tell you. I knew from the beginning that we were going to speak about time. The cheapest way, but not the easiest, but the cheapest way to gain performance and even more than that performance consistency is tire pressure management. Mastering PV equal NRT. In other words, if the temperature goes up, the pressure goes up, is the secret. Whether it's Formula One or Formula Ford or club racing, hill climb or whatever, I can tell you that's making a big difference. So the the way I would work is this. Okay. Let's say that I'm gonna speak in normal unit, which is Metric, I know that one of my public is American, but uh, I'm speaking normal unit day. For me, jumping between both, so that's fine. Let's say that at 8 o'clock, every morning when you come in the paddock, the temperature is 15 degrees C. So what you're going to do is this. You test your car, okay, and you adjust the tyre pressure until the driver is happy. Good. Remove your tyre from the car, put it in the garage, come in the morning and measure the pressure. That is the pressure, the cold pressure that you need to have the happy hot pressure. You understand what I'm saying? There is a little bit of correlation. Say, yeah, but the next morning my temperature is not 15, it's my ambient is not 15, it's 20. Ah, okay. So, what you need to do in that case is that it's normal that the cold pressure will be higher. Okay. And it's possible that the day you run the, the race. Yesterday in FP3, it was uh, 25 degree ambient. No, it's 35 degrees C ambient. So you're going to have a different target. And there are little trick about that, but simpler. That's the first thing you want to do. Tune the, the car with tire pressure. Unless you have a very heavy aerodynamic car, where in that case, ride is important, very important. But tire pressure is number one thing to do. So until your driver is happy with the tire pressure, put it on the side. And the next day, that is your call pressure as a reference. And then it goes up or down a little bit depending if the at eight o'clock in the morning your temperature is higher or lower. So I present the thing in a simple way but believe me if you apply that you already are making a, a, a lot of progress. The other thing that you have to be very careful is what do you put in your tire because the problem is that PV equal NRT is the equation of ideal gas and the problem is good old boys, unfortunately some are not on this earth anymore, friend of mine, which were, who were working at Goodyear, they told me a story. They were at the Nürburgring and the tire, the Formula One tires, which were uh, manufactured at, in Wolverhampton at that time, were carried through trucks, a closed truck through Belgium. And it's always ra- raining in Belgium. And by the way, Spa is the piss pot of Belgium. So it's always raining during a race in Belgium. And anyway, so despite the weather was nice, in, in Nürburgring, there was humidity going in the truck and therefore in the tire. And they said they were taking the pressure off the Tyrell, the Matra, the, uh, the Brabham, the Lotus, the McLaren. It was all over the place. And the reason for that is that if you have one drop of water on the left front, and two drops on the right front for the same elevation of temperature are not going to have the same. So you could use nitrogen. It's very expensive. I wouldn't recommend that. But just putting this vase with big block of salt at the exit of your compressor to dry I've up the air. I've not heard of that. So you put like a pot of salt. At the exit of the compressor, you have this kind of vase like a big jar, let's say okay. this way, and the air goes in there and it's dry up there. It's not perfect, but it's better. And you're going to have 8% of humidity instead of uh, 70. If you uh, put your tires on the rim the day uh, it's raining, guaranteed you have tons of humidity in there. In NASCAR, for example, they inflate or deflate the tire several times. If they do it in Phoenix, in Arizona, where the air is dry, they're going to do it like three, four, five times. But if they do it in Michigan, and Michigan in August, near the lakes and so on, it's very humid, it's not tropical, but it's humid. And uh, they're going to have to inflate, deflate with nitrogen like 50 times before they have the pressure they want. They have to bleed the tire. You don't have the money and the time to do that in, form in, uh, in amateur racing, but simply this dehydrated, or I don't know you call it, I know the name in French, I don't even remember. But it's, it's basically you dry the air out of the compressor, keeping in the big block of salt a maximum of humidity. And the other thing, never put your tire on the rim with, you know, the classical thing is like the brush in a little bucket of soapy water that you put on the rim. This is high tide. (laughs) So what you do is that you take a rag, clean rag with a little bit of alcohol. You clean the rim, you clean the tire, and there is some special grease I don't remember, Pirelli as one, for example, which is a minimum content of humidity. And actually in the pressure, that grease is becoming like a little glue. And oh. then, yeah, yeah. And so it prevents the tire. And you always need to make a little piece of choke between the rim and the tire to make sure that in acceleration, the tire is not pivoting because otherwise you could have balancing problem and so on. And that little grease, which is becoming a glue as it dries is, uh, is good. But be, be careful. If you want... Pressure consistency, it's about not putting too much water in your Not too much because you will have, you know, 0% of humidity doesn't exist. One of the it's things like
0: about what we try to do here is just try to, it's that 80-20 rule. It's what is actually going on. What is the right question to ask is how much humidity is in your
1: tire. The answer is I can't get rid of it, but I can do something get me most of the way. there. In the United States for $295, you can have a sense of measuring the humidity in your tire. But it's at rest. Now you have a company like Texas, Texas Texans, It's a French company. I'm a little bit careful with French company, but this one is really good. They got uh, accreditation for Airbus now and so on. And, and they have half of the uh, Formula One paddock and two-thirds of the uh, Le Mans paddock. They do a very good job, I have to say. Texans came with a, pr- uh, a sensor that you put on the rim, which measure not only the pressure, not only the temperature, but also the humidity and also what they do is that they measure the carcass temperature, so you can measure not the temperature from the outside and from the inside, but this is expensive and professional, so I just want to make you, you listen a dream by saying that there is sensor measuring the humidity live, but for 295, well, how much is that, 250 pounds, whatever, can measure the, the humidity at rest, so it's just like you put the pressure, you put it there and you measure, and because you cannot make progress unless you measure, okay? If I want to lose weight, I'm going to put myself on the scale every day. So if you want to know how much humidity you have, you measure it.
0: That's it. I think we're just bringing this conversation to a close. I'm, I'm, I'm loving it so much I don't want it to finish but it's, we'll have to have you back on to talk about something else would,
1: I'm excited that it's passion it is and that's what make and that's why uh, yeah that's why I, I love my job my wife told me the other day are you going to retire one day and said gee I retired 43 years ago when I graduated <laughs> I, I'm on holidays I'm paid to have fun that's uh, make me I say keep saying that to the kids make you passion your job make you passion your job Anyway, but I would love to continue. I have tons of very funny, intellectual, practical uh, stories to share with you and I would love to do that. It would be an absolute pleasure. I think just thinking about it's hard to to know
0: where to start summing up, but I think the the messages that I'm getting through is that there's not the formula that's going to work for every car in terms of the, how do I cure this problem? If
1: there was, there would,
0: I would be very rude. But there is a, a formula in the sense of a process that you can go through. And then being aware that maybe you're not always going to have all the answers, but at least you're going to be going in a way that's going to start, you're going to be learning. And I think one of the things that is... The cork comes out of the bottle for people when you see, us. I work with people and they see the light come on and it's, okay, I get this. They've been looking for a definite. And in fact, what they need to be thinking about sometimes is that this is a, a learning experience and you'll always learn more mm-hmm. because your car's unique, the day's unique, your tyres unique, blah, blah, blah. There's so much unique stuff. Mm-hmm. But you can do it by by having that confidence. Those great tips on the tyre pressures and certainly on the the data side, it's fascinating to hear about the a little bit of the history of the data like coming in the black boxes and things like that. I happen to you know have met uh, Tony Pennell a few times, and, and so I'm, I'm a bit of a pie fan, but but these days we're spoiled a little bit because it's so easy really with the GPS, and the stuff you can get on your phone is actually still useful. But that also means that people are a lot more interested. So it's like they're interested, so they want to do something with it. So how can we, as experienced people, maybe help them and guide them and give them some some tips on that? So that's been really good. And you know,
1: Samir, if you are sick and you go to see a doctor, you hope three things: that the guy know what he's speaking about, he's a little bit older, I'm more confident with a 45 than a 25 years old doctor, and then the third thing, the guy will ask data. You would ask X-ray blood test and so on. So if you're sick, you need data and you need to be able to measure them. It's it's not very different.
0: It's strange. I was having this conversation, a slight like aside again, but I was having this conversation with someone the other day. It's like the they don't see themselves as analytical or data or comfortable with numbers. But then I said, what about this that you're doing? And they had a watch with some numbers on it and stuff like that. Oh, that's not data. You you know what I mean? It's like there's a kind of like a mindset or an association with data that's negative. And it's a bit like it's just a means to an end to help you get what you want.
1: People are afraid of what they don't know. And one of my goals is to present the thing in a relatively simple way so that technology is accessible and not necessarily scary and not necessarily expensive. I agree with that one, 100%. It's actually hard to
0: do that. And I'm, I think I, I empathise a little bit with you in the sense of understand this stuff because I'm
1: not super smart. I have to like really make it simple. I tell a lot of jokes. I ended up telling the people the seminar is free your charge, you pay for the jokes. <laughs> and because I illustrate the theory. If I play the math teacher, the guys are going to fall asleep, I'm going to fall asleep, and it's just about illustration. There is one word that I have all the time. It's meaningfulness. Mm. What does it mean? Or how do you use that? What? Okay, square root or blah, blah, blah. But What does it mean? Give me an example. An example comes from history. Yeah. So. I explain mistakes that I've made, a few success and a lot of mistakes that I've made. It's science. Science is our observation. Yeah. You make a tentative deduction. You make a theory. You validate the theory. You apply the theory. So you explain. So first of all, you look, you present yourself like a normal guy by yeah. saying, yeah. I f- up, okay, many times. And I said, these are, and I shared a few successes and the minimis that I want them to have, and the mini mistake I don't want them to do. For me, as I say, I love to speak about it. So uh, I hope we're going to have another session uh, because I have many tips and tricks and funny things to tell you. It's been a real honor. Thank you very much for taking the time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay busy.
0: Wow. So you can come up for air now. How great was that? I promised you an avalanche of tips and techniques, so I really hope you get as much out of this as you can from our conversation. I wouldn't blame you if you needed to run through that one and listen to it again. You may know that at the end of season one, I wrote the Motorsports Playbook, a summary distilling the first 20 shows into nuggets of wisdom. I made the notes so that you don't have to. If you've not got it yet, go and grab yourself a copy from the website. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and visit us at yourdatadriven.com.